Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. So we've been talking a lot about The Great Divide, and you've been talking about it on your blog as well. And uh, the question that continued to, continues to replay in my mind over and over again is... Um, is is not necessarily so what, but but uh, but along those lines, trying to understand, okay, if we if we did have a better understanding of of the other side of the divide, and if that was more core to uh, our faith traditions, core to some aspects of society, uh, what would that look like? What would be the differences uh, that we would see today? And I'm curious yeah. if you yeah if you could speak on that some. Sure. A very accessible book for listeners is Rodney Stark's uh, book, The Rise of Christianity. So I'm going to take a number of cues from Stark. Stark, uh, by the way, wrote this book as an agnostic. He was a professor at the University of Washington, sociologist. And uh, through a series of books that he did on early Christianity, he eventually had a faith awakening. He now teaches at Baylor. So Stark would be someone who, when he began to write, I think it would be about 2004, I may have the year, but um, he was crossing the Great Divide. And he went back and looked, and if I were to summarize them, a lot of them was, wow, Christians don't even know their history. So I'm drawing from that book. But it's a good example of someone who crossed the Great Divide and found this to be riveting. So here's some uh, differences. Uh, the first thing that, you, that strikes you is the phenomenal growth of the early church. It started with 120 and roughly 80, 33. And then uh, by 300, it was 10% of the population, a Roman Empire population, about 6 million. By the mid-300s, Pat, it was 50% of the Roman Empire. And what Stark will point out is it wasn't by this notion of church planting and evangelism, although those things certainly were going on. But there's some striking differences in, in uh, the way the church operated and its assumptions. So here they are, and here's some very quick examples. Because as, as a C.S. Lewis pointed out the great divide, and he puts a year on it, is 1816. And he said it divides the old Western world from the new Western world. 1816 it comes on the heels or is the result of the didactic enlightenment, 1800 to 1815, the American enlightenment, that was strikingly different than the three previous enlightenments in Europe and Britain. And it produced an evangelical tradition that is strikingly different than evangelical traditions in Europe and throughout Asia. 
but you'd have to cross the great divide to see how different they are. So here, here they are, here are a few. First of all, most Christians on this side of the divide, well, let's just talk about, you know, I'm an, I'm an basically I'm an evangelical Anglo-Catholic. Well, that's a long, dense phrase. <laughs> I'm trying to be careful to say what I'm not, what I am. <laughs> but I am old world evangelical Anglo-Catholic, blah, blah, blah. So what? Well, most of my friends on this side of the divide are new world evangelical. And they assume, for starters, that the church is primarily, the ancient church was primarily made up of the dispossessed, the disenfranchised, and the four, the poor. Yeah, there were only four Christians. <laughs> the poor, the enslaved. And what Stark will point out, which is striking, is the church was primarily urban elites. It was primarily the aristocracy. So that's one striking difference right away is the church was the upper class. And you look on this side of the divide, the church primarily is not upper class anymore. We primarily have impact with the down and out. The early church had primarily had impact with the up and in. Now, that didn't mean they ignored the poor and the disenfranchised. They didn't. But Stark and other historians go so far as to say they were almost ignored or less impacted because of the uh, phenomenal impact amongst the up and in. This, for example, is why uh, pagan changed in its meaning. Pagan, as you know, means uh, land dweller, farmer in the time of Christ someone who lived outside the cities on the land. That's why when Paul, for example, goes to the goes to Mars Hill, that's the aerial, aeropagus, uh, 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 two words, aero, elevate, pagus, land. So uh, it's called Mars Hill. But pagan simply meant land dweller. Well, by 400 A.D., the term had come to denote someone who is beyond the reach or outside the reach of the gospel because the gospel was an urban phenomenon primarily, primarily amongst the elites and the educated. So there's one difference right away, Pat. And that's, uh, <clears throat> I mean, all we know is the evidence of that being. We don't necessarily know there was a focus on elites or it was just that we do understand the gospel was in some way more impactful to elites in a different way than it is now. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. The word wouldn't, that's right. It wouldn't be focus. Here would be the better word. It's the network. It was in the network. So the, 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 uh, the notion sociologically, sociologists will say the network is the key. And humanly, when we say sociologically, another way to put it is humanly speaking, that's the key. So humanly speaking, so we're not in any way denigrating the work of the spirit. Another difference, by the way, on this side of the divide is you'll often people say, uh, you'll hear Christians say, well, you know, it's just, it's up to the, where's the Holy Spirit in all this? On the other side of the divide, they would say everywhere, all the time. What would even make you ask, where's the Holy Spirit? That's what's called a sacramentalist view which was um, prevalent in the western church up until the great divide sacramentalist meant 
God is present in everything, all the time, everywhere. Everything has is spiritual. Everything is sacred. This side of the divide, you came up with this dichotomy, sacred, spiritual. You went, you're reading that book. Isn't that secular? <laughs> and so that, you have the, you, I, if I've heard this once, I heard it a hundred times from Christians. I, I get to the end on something like this kind of a discussion. They'll go, he didn't mention the Holy Spirit. Where's the Holy Spirit? That's a lot like saying, you know, I listened to Pat and Mike this morning. They never mentioned oxygen. Hmm. Where was the oxygen? Yeah, there the whole time. It's, it's assumed. It's, it's important. We're not living without it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And in him, the scriptures remind us, we live and move and have our being in him. We don't live and move and operate without the spirit of God infusing and breathing life into us. But it's a, it's a, it's telling to have Christians ask at the end of a discussion like this, where's the Holy Spirit? I mean, if you, yeah, so we could, we could chase that down. That is a, that's a deadly detour. And it's also, it's also, it has to be called for what it is. It's absurd. It's a lot like saying, um, where was you, where was you mentioning in breathing? Where was you mentioning of your heart rate? Where was you mentioning brain activity? Those are all givens. It was a given. So on this side of the divide, you have the sacred secular dichotomy, which is largely built upon, this is important, the notion that God is absent from some things. Whereas before the great divide, God is present in all things. Hence, everything is sacred. That's why even, you know, a very simple example is the Eucharist or communion is practiced very differently in, in most evangelical churches. I mean, I've heard them say, this is nothing more than bread and wine. It simply symbolizes something. Well, what they're saying is, if it's nothing more than bread and wine, they're saying, God's not in this bread and wine. God's not present in this. Hence, you'll see the sloppiness in the way it's distributed, the, the sloppiness in the way it's taken, and the casualness of it all. Whereas Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And the, this side of the divide, we've got to do some uh, interpretive gymnastics to get around that. Whereas on the other side of the divide, that's a, of course, when we take the Eucharist, he's present. He's in it. We're, we're, now, some would say it's transubstantiation, consubstantiation. I don't really care to get into all that. The fact is, you're literally ingesting the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, the reason that's important is here's another big difference between before the Great Divide and after. Before the Great Divide, the gospel was essentially God marrying us. On this side of the divide, it's essentially God saving us. Now, on the other side of the divide, the early church, why you say, well, how, where do you get that, Mike? Uh, well, first of all, what Stark will point out is that, and many other historians, is the early church for its first 300 years was primarily Jewish. 
And any Jew who paid attention or was perceptive, that's a good word, Daniel was perceptive, it says. And Daniel, during the Babylonian exile, it literally says in Daniel 9, he perceived that Jeremiah was right. And what, would, what did Jeremiah say? Jeremiah said, while you're in exile, back in Jerusalem, the temple and Jerusalem will be devastated in, by 70 years. So we often talk about the Babylonian exile and they're gone and they're to seek the flourishing of Babylon, but back home. Now, why is it, Pat, it, why, so what? Daniel perceives that Jerusalem is going to be devastated. You, ever, you read that and you go, oh, so what? Yeah, it's a good question. Okay, that's because we live on this side of the divide. So here we go. On the other side of the divide, the early church being Jewish, there's only there are two main depictions of the church or the people of God as the bride of Christ. The first is marriage. The second, Jerusalem, is often denoted as the bride. Now get this, Pat. My wife, Kathy, and I tomorrow, by the way, celebrate 39 years of marriage. Wow. Congratulations. I know. Yeah, I could have done the old joke. 39 years of, of happiness. 39 out of 50 ain't bad. <laughs> but we're not in Jersey. We're not in a nightclub. So back to the, back to the story. <laughs> Kathy would be devastated if I came to her and said, I'm divorcing you. That, that's, that's what God does. That's what he does. With the destruction of the temple, you mean? That's the destruction of Jerusalem, including the temple. Mm. He says, I'm divorcing you. I hate divorce. Which, by the way, accounts for Jesus when he's asked about marriage and divorce. The Pharisees try to screw the whole thing up. And uh, why did God command xyz to get divorced and uh he says you err because you don't know the scriptures and he goes back to creation and says god never intended for that to happen he said moses permitted you to get divorced because of the hardness of your heart in the case of adultery in the bab during the babylonian exile the prophet isaiah writes to the people and he says your creator is your husband and Hosea, the prophet says, and you are his betrothed. Betrothed meaning married, not engaged, married. Hence, we read in Jeremiah 34, he says this old covenant, I'm breaking it. I'm divorcing you to give a new covenant, to remarry you. But this time I will be in you. I will be in you. And one will not have to say the other, know the Lord, because you will all know me. The picture in Judaism from Genesis on, knowing is penetration. It is God penetrating us, depicted in nuptial union. Hence, the Eucharist is God penetrating us, entering us as the husband enters the bride. When was the last time you heard that in church? 
Yeah, that's that's not on the list of things I've heard. <laughs> Hence, Paul would write to the Corinthian church, who some were so debauched, they just came in and wolfed down um, the communion. He said, and that's why some of you, some of your <clears throat> friends, your brothers and sisters are dead. When was the last time you heard that, by the way? It's another one. Take Take care in taking communion here because you take this unworthily, it can kill you. In the this side of the divide, the average Christian would hear say, Masquerade is off his rocker. That's nuts. Well, you being off your rocker is a different conversation. Well, that's true. That's a bad example. Uh, well, <laughs> I got to find one that's credible. <laughs> I mean, so. I I definitely resonate with being on that train of of communion, the Eucharist. No, it's just symbolic. Uh, I I get that, and my my understanding was very much well. Yeah, because of science, Mike. You know, we know science would exp- explain to us that there's nothing beyond the bread and the wine. So how how do you how do you approach that without without being a cuckoo and just throwing science out the window. Uh, That's right. Great how, question. How do you do that? Well, again, to perhaps to C.S. Lewis and his ilk, he said, that's not science, that's scientism. What's the difference? Uh, relying too heavily on science? Solely. Soul. Solely oh, science. That's a better way to put it. In other words, science. Science is the Latin word for knowledge. The first time you see knowledge uh, gained in Genesis is through intercourse. Something spiritual yet material is going on in that exchange. It's depicting God marrying us. And it's just recurring throughout Genesis of this phrase, and he entered her, and he entered her, and he entered her, and he entered her. Written for knuckleheads like you and me who don't get it the first time around. That's science. Science is good. Scientism is when it dominates all thinking. It sets the boundaries and um, it defines reality. And scientism defends, defines all of reality as entirely materialistic. So that's a good distinction. So we're all for science. Scientism is uh, will lead to what Lewis called the abolition of man. It will be the end of humanity, the end of human nature as we understand it. Now, we'll get back to our story here. If you have a church that is uh, uh, largely Jewish, then when you have Jesus in the Last Supper saying, this is the cup of the new covenant, I'm going to the cross to marry you. The cross is what Augustine talks about, is the nuptial union. Now, it is also, yes, payment for sin. It's both and. It is betrothal and payment. On this side of the divide, betrothal is dropped out. Payment for sin has remained. So you see on crosses, especially look at Celtic crosses and Celtic Christianity, uh, dates back to like the 100s, you'll see the crosses have in the center, often they have uh, 
depicts a, a sometimes a rose, sometimes a sphere. Why a rose, by the way? Uh, for, for passion, for love. Well, actually, the rose, because as a rose petal opens, that depicts the female, the bride, opening her body for reception by penetration by the husband. So you have these depictions of the cross, we are betrothed. Hence, when Paul writes the Corinthian, the debauched Corinthian church, he reminds them, I betrothed you to Christ, to one husband. He's just saying to him, I married you to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin, might. So first of all, when you have a gospel, they remind you that in creation, Everybody is created to be the bride of Christ. Everybody. Even the Roman soldier. Even the paganized. Even the Babylonians. Then you look at them differently. How do you look at them differently, Pat? If you're saying if they are the bride of Christ, how do you look at them? Well, they're, they're created to be the bride of Christ. I'm not saying they are. Mm. But they are created. How do you look at them differently? Well, on the, on the one hand, you you share something with them. They're not necessarily the the wicked sinner. That's right. They're, you're connected at a deeper level. Yeah, very good, excellent. At a deeper level, at the deepest level, at the deepest level. This is why Jesus said the great command. And what is the great command? Love God and love neighbor. Love your neighbor. Neighbor means close one. Love those that are all around you. Why? Because they, just like you, were created for an eternal destiny as God's bride. Now, you, you put that into place, and you have an early church therefore saying, well, if we're all connected, who am I connected with right now? Where are the networks? But I don't think in terms of that's a secular network, that's a secular film, that's a secular book, that's a Christian book, that's a Christian song, that's a secular song. These are all created by people who were created in the image of God. Now, I am in no way minimizing sin. I'm in no way minimizing the fall. I'm in no way minimizing the absolute devastation because of sin. But that's why Daniel is important for what we're talking about today because Daniel said he perceived the devastation to come upon Jerusalem. Devast perception is different than knowing about something. How's it different, Pat? Uh, I would guess perception is is being aware, uh, almost an out uh, an outside view, external, uh, maybe having some insight to what it may be, whereas knowing is is actually experiencing the thing. Yeah, actually, in in this, it's actually kind of different. Uh, actually, almost opposite in a way, but <laughs> that's okay. That's a good point. I you know actually I should have said not knowing, but being aware, but. 
that's a better better distinction perception versus being aware hmm. so perception is knowing but perception is seeing deeply into something it is actually it's a good phrase would be is it's omg that's what perception is it's i mean name a jew who didn't know what jeremiah had written about probably everyone how many of them had oh my god that's us oh my god what does that denote that the bride is going to be devastated oh my god he's divorcing us oh my god he would only divorce because of adultery we've been adulterous oh my god And we live in an age today, and this goes Catholic, Protestant, right across the board. Name a Christian who doesn't know, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Sure. But we can hardly go a week or a month with another great, with another priest or pastor, it hardly matters, who defiles it right and left. What, they don't know that's wrong? They don't, they don't perceive. Perception is all, is all the way down. Here's another way to put it. Perception is uh, seen in, in uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah, if you read it carefully, you'll notice he points out six woes. So he's got the finger pointed out at the Judeans six times. Woe, woe to you for this. 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 And then there's a break on the seventh one. He goes, and it's understood that what he's actually doing is he's saying, time out. Let me take you back to before all these woes that I've seen. And that's when he tells that story of, then I saw the Lord enthroned. And I went, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. Oh, my God. OMG. I'm in trouble. And the Lord takes a coal, cleanses his lips. And he says, go tell the people. So these six woes that follow, which you have there for his picture, seven woes in completion. But the first one is he perceives, as does Daniel, oh my stars, this is what's going on here. You just don't get a lot of perception on this side of the great divide anymore. You don't have someone approaching the communion table and saying, oh my God, am I right? Do I, do I still bear a grudge against that person? Have I been, have I been deep into porn this week? Uh, did I? You still had that going on. Because it's just bread and wine. It's just bread and wine. In fact, a lot of times it's just coming around this big tray and they got a little cracker taped to the bottom or somehow glued to the bottom. And, and that's it. And when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, remember what? Remember that this is the blood of the new covenant. In other words, had we never fallen, we would still be betrothed at some point. It wouldn't have required blood. 
and flesh. But because we fell, we're still betrothed, but the betrothal at the cross now also pays for sin. This side of the divide, most crosses have, they don't have anything in the center. It's stripped out. Now, will that get you to heaven? Sure will. But what you have on the other side of the divide is, of course we love our neighbor. And we're not doing it transactionally. Hey, I'm going to love you so you come to Christ. That's God's business. I'm going to love you because my husband calls me to love you because you and I are organically, spiritually, mystically connected at the deepest level, all designed to be the bride of Christ. So you don't have these notions of, I'm saved lost, I'm loving you so that you will be saved. Enjoy me. Of course we want people saved, and of course people are lost. But when you reduce it down to that, it becomes in there invariably transactional. And it also becomes, frankly, because that there's something, I think, intuitively off on that, that most people just go, um, gosh, we're so different. How would I ever connect with them? That's why you have, at least Barna said some X amount of years ago, Barna researched that only 1% of uh, evangelicals, that's all they were looking at in this survey, will ever see another person come to faith. Only 1%. Well, your system has to be perfectly designed to yield that. And the system is perfectly designed as these people you're trying to impact are wholly different than you are. Well, good luck with that. Sure. Hmm. Well, one thing I think maybe worth mentioning, uh, you're talking about, in some sense, this idea of enchanted objects. I think that's this this notion that there is something beyond uh, the physical. Like you said, scientism speaks to materialism, the idea that everything is material. Uh, Charles Taylor, in his book, uh, A Secular Age, super dense, super thick, but... <laughs> Uh, super smart <laughs> yeah, yeah far above my intelligence um but but he interestingly so he talks a lot about this idea of enchantment and getting his his book is kind of how do we how do we get from where we were to where we are now in such a secular age hence the title yeah. but he talks a lot about disenchantment and uh this notion that that um not necessarily saying it's good or bad but just that we we no longer view things as enchanted and the natural response that i have and, and other guys i've been reading this book with is to think well of course we don't like i said earlier because science and i think that uh where i've started to see the the tension there is that in a lot of ways we are acting in response to maybe an over emphasis on enchantment the idea that you have cursed objects and different pieces that we naturally think this is the kind of stuff you see in the movies or we make fun of or, or whatnot. So we've completely thrown all of that out. And that's where we're coming to the table at is with that in mind. And uh, 
So, so again, like where we're trying to clarify, I think, Mike, what you're saying is not that everything is enchanted and we should view the world from that lens, but maybe we've thrown out just a tad too much. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. <clears throat> we live in an enchanted world. We live in an enchanted world with enchanted objects, many of which have been corrupted or tarnished. So in the same way that if um, I was in college, I had a, a, a Datsun that was pretty rusted up. So rust is a tarnishing of two good things, oxygen and iron. And in fact, in somewhere in the past, that was a good looking body panel on that car, but it was tarnished and it was bent and it was corrupted. And so if you can, un the, uh, the notion was we live in an enchanted world, all created by God. So all of it originally enchanted even down to enjoying a peanut butter sandwich. But in a corrupted world, a lot of these things get rusted over and you don't see them. And then in a reductionist, this side of the gospel, I think that explains why that discussion group I used to lead long ago at the country club, 60% of the men, when I ask, you know, when you think of heaven, the one word that 60% had the same word. They're writing them secretly on a card, and that word was boring. That's a lack of enchantment. I mean, again, wanna, I want to say this <clears throat> carefully, but, but it, it, it should be said because you see it in Scripture that, you know, Kathy and I have an enchanted marriage because you have intimacy. And if you don't have intimacy, it's hard to have an enchanted marriage. And in the same way, if you don't have an enchanted, if you don't have intimacy in this whole notion of being a Christian, then you're not, it's not going to be very enchanting. I also think with the loss of this enchantment, you, you explain why people then look for diversions for enchantment. You know, for example, C.S. Lewis and the Inklings were not into travel. They understood travel comes from the old English word traveo, means a journey uh, fraught with danger. So I, I think it's funny that the number of churches that talk about, you know, life's a journey and faith is a journey. Well, okay, I'm fine with that. If you see it's, a, it's you know, fraught with danger and it's got exhilarations, it's got enchantments, it's got, you know, this room is stuffed with spiritual beings. But... If when you strip all that out, people are going to get their enchantment somewhere. And it was John Stott who wrote eloquently on this some 40, 50 years ago. He said those enchantments could be drugs. Those enchantments could be, I happen to think today they're like travel or dining. And it's basically just saying, I'm looking for something that kind of enchants me. So it might be, I had a meal at this restaurant that's unbelievable. Well, it is unbelievable and it should be enjoyed, but it shouldn't be enjoyed more than the enchantment being married to Jesus. Yeah. But if you never hear about being married to Jesus, 
You're going to find your enchantments somewhere. Yeah, that's good. I mean, that's, I think that's a pretty clear <clears throat> distinction for sure. Uh, There's another distinction I think it is important to bring out too, is that because Dallas Willard says on this side of the, of the divide, he said the American church lives in a bubble of historical illusion regarding the gospel and discipleship. Now, I'm a big fan of Dallas Willard. If people are not familiar with Willard, wrote many fine books, The Divine Conspiracy, where he talks about on this side of the divide, we've reduced the gospel to sin management. How do you deal with your the, our sin problem? Um, but he says, we live in a bubble of historical illusion. What did he mean by that? Yeah, what do you mean by that? And he says, it comes from the Enlightenment. So there you go again. The didactic Enlightenment, 1800 to 1815. The Great Divide, 1816. Now we're on this side. In the Enlightenment, the didactic reduces down human nature to think right, act right. The only reason, Pat, you're not like Christ is you just don't know enough information. So we're going to work hard in any venue and every venue that we could find to give you more and more information. Again, I go back to, you know, now at my age, the number of men and women I know who are, are getting divorced, and there ain't one of them that doesn't know that God hates divorce. There's not a one of them that doesn't know you're to be faithful to your spouse. They got all that information crammed in their head, but it never made it to their loins. And that's because in this didactic enlightenment, the sequence is head to heart to hand. You've heard that before. The greatest gap in the Christian world is that 18 inches between your head and your heart. Well, it's not the greatest gap. The greatest gap is the two cubits between your hands and your heart. Mm. Greek philosophers said man is the most intelligent of beings because he has hands. And Adam first began to gain knowledge by his hands. He touched the animals. And then he gained the knowledge of Eve by initially touching her. And the things, as Flannery Conroe wrote, the things that we taste and touch and feel affect us long before we believe anything at all. So on the other side of the divide, the sequence was hands to heart to head. Your brain's the last thing to catch up to what you honestly believe. And hence, you'll even read in Stark's book that the early church did not attach a lot of reports to doctrinal things. It was rather get your hands going on something. It was called a prescription for action. And hence, for example, in pandemics, the big one, the Antoine plague, when everyone fled the cities, uh, Christians remained in the cities. They stayed and they, uh, they risked life and limb. Some even died. But they understood this contributed to this notion that uh, this really is a faith that you gain by what you put your hands to, which, by the way, raises 
some questions I'm, I'm going to try to write about that a number of Christians I know who are quarantining and fleeing this COVID-19. And I go, that's fascinating. That's exactly what the Roman classical physician Galen did. So that all his accounts of the plague were secondhand. Secondhand. Fascinating. We use that phrase, by the way, isn't it? Secondhand. Hmm. Means he had no firsthand experience. Most of the Christians I know have no firsthand experience with caring for people that have been adversely impacted by COVID-19. That would be primarily the black and Hispanic populations. Instead, their number one objective is to quarantine, to keep their families safe. On the other side of the divide, just the opposite. And as Stark says, this, this very much accounts for the dramatic rise of the Christian faith over its first 300 years. And when pandemics, which just mowed through cities, Christians didn't flee. And some of them might say, well, that's because they were poor. So they couldn't afford to flee. Wrong. <laughs> they were the wealthy, just like the others. And they said, no, we're staying. But, you, but, your, but your daughter, she could die. We're staying. Why? Love your neighbor. Now, this brings up the second. So Willard said the gospel and discipleship. By the gospel, he meant that it's reduced down to what he calls gospels of sin management, how to deal with your sin problem. So that's a gospel where the, where the gospel starts in Genesis 3 when we fall. And it primarily deals with, as historian, uh, uh, as one historian writes it, sin, salvation, and sanctification. Now, see, if you were in a pre-1816, you'd say, well, that covers everything. But it covers everything from eating to, it covers everything. In post-1816, it really kind of huddles down to... Um, yeah, sin was I taken care of. Salvation, I am saved. And well, yeah, I'm supposed to be sanctified. And to be frank, sorry, a joke would be, Mike, you're not frank, so don't try to be frank. Just be Mike. Uh, that notion takes sanctification, thins it out so much. What do we mean by that, Pat? Sanctification? Wow. Well, it means to grow into Christ's life. What does that mean? We have to become like Christ. What does that mean? See, we've lost meaning. It's not a meaningful faith anymore. I'll give you, now if you cross before the Great Divide, what Willard is saying is this historical illusion, this bubble of historical illusion regarding the gospel and discipleship, the gospel is no longer Jesus marrying us. It's just Jesus saving us. It's reduced down to sin management. Discipleship is no longer the bride preparing for the wedding banquet. Ah, that. That's why we are discipled. It's what Paul said. I betrothed you that I might present you as a prepared, pure virgin. I might. Why did God send Israel into the Assyrian 
exile and Judeans into the Babylonian, they were adulterous. He divorced them. He devastated them. Why? Three Miriam, new covenant. This is why even people talk about, you know, where we, we believe in the covenant, what have you. Well, their covenants often start with either Abraham or this and that. Go back and read Genesis. The Hebrew word in Genesis 1 is powerful. Name for God, rather. The name for God is powerful. And you see that in Genesis 2, it's covenant keeping. This whole notion of covenant, that God marrying us, marriage is a covenant, is uh, is predates creation. This is a gospel that goes way before creation. Can't even say way before because there is no time in eternity. Hmm. It predates creation. So here's a here's a whopping difference. The gospel historically was long before there was a heavens and earth. Yes, there was a war, but there was also a desire for Father, Son, Spirit. To expand the circle of love can't do that with angels because they're not made in his image so we're created in the image of god you see pat if the gospel is simply god saving us then if god really loved us wouldn't he put us instead in a situation where we'd never fall in other words why not create us in heaven as saved people it's a question i hear a lot why in heaven's name put us on this sphere in a universe of spheres where no straight line occurs naturally, what's that telling us? And why is it you'll see over and over in before the great divide, God is described as an infinite sphere. And why is it so much of the human body is spheres? And why is it that all of our some people don't like this word, they cringe in the air, but our genitalia are spherical. What are all these things pointing toward? Science can't, science could answer that question. Scientism can't. And discipleship is preparing for the wedding banquet. Hence, you have all these warning parables by Jesus of virgins who are not prepared. They're, they're married, but they're not prepared. This is why Joseph is devastated to learn that his wife, Mary, is pregnant. And he seeks to, quote, put her away, divorce her quietly. God says, no, no. I've impregnated her. This is a wow gospel. And Willard lamented that we live in a bubble of historical illusion that, yes, can get people to heaven with a thinned out gospel, but it makes it really difficult to disciple people because. Uh, put it frankly, in these terms, you've lost your leverage. You know what I mean by that? No, no. Explain it. Well, what do you lose, Pat? If now that you're, we're going to pretend, you know, you're a gospel, you're a typical Christian on this side of the divide. So you 
Maybe you went to a camp or you went somewhere, you prayed to receive Christ, you invited him, your sins are saved. So you got the sin problem solved and you're saved. So that's solved. Now they want you to be discipled. Why? Hmm. I don't know. I'm saved. I'm, I'm saved. Yeah. So, so what happens is discipleship becomes nice, but not necessary. You know, that's, that's really interesting because so many Christian leadership circles I've been a part of, the, the constant question you get is, well, how do we get people to take their faith more seriously? How do we get people to share the gospel? How do you get beyond salvation? How do we get them to, to step into that realm? Which speaks to exactly what you're saying. Exactly. I would urge readers, if you want to pursue this, to read Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy, because he says, he goes through the, the litany of uh, our behaviors, which are pretty much the same as those who don't know Christ. Pretty much. And his point is, he goes, then he cites that famous business maxim, your system is perfectly designed to yield the results you're getting. So the system of the gospel and discipleship is perfectly designed to yield bored men at a country club who are saved so they don't wake up in the morning and go, what about my soul? Oh, no, I've been assured I'm saved. What about my sin? I'm assured of. By the way, this strikes another thought, a difference between the, before the great divide and after. Yeah, I know the church you go to. I already know the answer, but I'll ask it. Do you have confessional booths? <laughs> no, we do not. Do you recite the confession weekly? Yeah, definitely not weekly. Corporately? Very, very rarely. Why confessional booths in churches before the Great Divide? Well, it was actually a, uh, not only a practice, but a demand of confession. Why? See, on this side of the divide, people say, uh, they're just in these rules and do's and don'ts. And to which I go, yeah, and what's the problem with that? Like God says, don't covet your neighbor's wife. Why confessional booze? Well, here's the, re here's the answer. Prior to the great divide, yes, you have your sins forgiven, but you still sin. And second, salvation was in three tenses. You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. Have been saved comes when you trust Christ, and his death on the cross is 100% sufficient. That's deal. Being saved requires your participation and your confessing of sins as you go along, both to God and to neighbor. And that determines how much you will be saved. Hence, we read in Colossians 1, 27, we are privileged in our flesh, fascinating, see, in our body, our physical body, we are privileged to fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Whoa. 
in his body, in his sufferings, Christ's payment for sin is 100% total, all we need to be saved. But in being saved, his sufferings are incomplete. And we complete them as his bride, filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. See, all that's lost today, Pat. So therefore, you would have confessional booths because you're going to church saying, yeah, of course I've, I've been saved, and of course my sins have been forgiven, but they have to be being forgiven, and I have to be being saved in order to be a prepared bride. Here's another way to put it. How many years have you been a Christian? We'll close with this. Uh, Take a guess. Yeah, tw uh, 25. 25. And let's just say you know by now... 500 Christians. How many of them have ever come to you and confessed that they have sinned against you? Less than I can count on one hand. Okay. Well, then you must not have any fingers because if it's less than you can count on one hand, you're down to a zero. Yeah, yeah that was probably what, only what I can count on one hand. <laughs> well, guess what, Pat? you know some of the most incredible Christians the world has ever seen. Because apparently they don't sin. <laughs> no, the system is perfectly designed that they've been told their sins are forgiven. Well, what about, like, you gossiped about Pat the other day. Uh, yeah, it's forgiven. What about confess your sins to one another, you may be healed. Um, I've never heard that. Um, well, certainly, don't you every Sunday recite a corporate confession as churches on the other side of the divide do? No. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I'll let you off the hook because you've got a gospel that is caught in a bubble of historical illusion.